We continue uh, or wrap up our Advent uh, sermon series, and uh, we've been going through the uh, lectionary readings, uh, focusing mostly on uh, the epistle readings. Uh, we started the season uh, in Romans chapter 13, and we talked about how important it was that uh, we are people who, yes, are living at in the night. There is a sense in which the darkness of uh, this world continues to weigh heavy. But according to Paul, the night is long gone. That is to say that we are near morning. That this is not the beginning of the night. This is the end. And as people who look forward to the dawn, who have seen the beginnings of that light break because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that the morning is coming. We know the first rays of light have begun. And even at our back, there may be the darkest part of the night. What we can see ahead is the light of Christ. And we are then called to put on, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, Romans 13, uh, the armor of light of Christ. Another way of talking about the richness of what it is to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. To know the power of his faith and love and wisdom and scripture. And so we head as those not in the beginning of night. But recognizing that this is near the end of death's even failing power. That sin's power has been broken. And the day is coming. And then we move from there in, uh, to chapter 15 of Romans, and we talked about the nature of this light and what happens to us as God's people. We are called increasingly not to live in the fear of night, which makes us self-protective, but begin to live as those who live in community in a radically different way that allows us to engage in community across all kinds of lines that in normal human interaction would divide us from one another. And so we know that Romans was written to people who were wrestling with the ethnic and religious and uh, differences of being Roman and Jewish. Heaven knows how many different kinds of Roman people there were in Rome. It was a huge uh, city with people from all over the empire. They are coming to faith. You've got Jewish folks who uh, see themselves rightfully uh, as those through which the Messiah came, the, those who have had the privilege of covenant with God for so many generations. And Paul in the book of Romans is talking about how to build a community that breaks down those old distinctions between Jew and Gentile. And he says in chapter 15, you are going to need the power of a God who long endures and is patient. Because community across all kinds of different lines and backgrounds, let alone within our own subcultures, takes endurance. It takes work to be in community with one another. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It wouldn't be an indication of God's love if just living together and sharing and no longer fearing what you will take from me, but living with an open hand and heart. Were easy, And so we looked at what it meant to be patient and to endure and take that from a God who's been patient and endured with us. 
And now we have that same power and strength in Christ. Last week, uh, we looked at Matthew chapter 11 and we contemplated a little bit the nature of Jesus' own ministry as he lived it out. What does that look like practically? How did Jesus begin to unpack that? And it was awkward enough, it was challenging enough, it was counterintuitive enough that even John the Baptist in Matthew 11, as we looked at that text, was wondering if we may sh- maybe should be looking for a different Messiah. And the challenge we often have of being in some way or another offended by the ministry of Jesus. And if you haven't been offended by the ministry of Jesus, you haven't read the Gospels recently. Because one way or another, the Jesus of Scripture will not fit into my view or your view of who Jesus should be. Doesn't matter whether you are somewhat frustrated at the church and would like to see Jesus be really aggressive towards the church. And there are these ways in which, with God's people, Jesus is incredibly gentle. And he keeps wrestling with them. And he keeps going to the Pharisees. And he ministers to Nicodemus. He won't let his people go. And in other ways, he's walking around all of the wrong people and reaching out to Samaritans and frustrating his own people by his generous love for the other. Jesus simply will not fit into any box you and I create. And if you haven't been offended by him, you haven't been reading. If you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount recently, and unpacked in our society as fired up as we are about our views, what it means to really love your enemy, and not been offended by that because Jesus doesn't understand how important these issues really are. And why I can't love that enemy because that enemy really is fill in the blank. If you let the weight of Jesus' words sit on you, it will trouble your heart. Now, it doesn't have to trouble your heart to despair, but you will see the difference between where your heart naturally goes and where the heart of Jesus finds himself, and the followers of Jesus find themselves. Now this morning, uh, as we begin a sermon at uh, 11 o'clock, we will briefly, (laughs) there's a joke about that, but I don't have time to tell it, but it's really hilarious about ministers and short sermons. Ask me afterwards. Uh, This morning we're going to read... Romans chapter 1, just the first seven verses, and I want to walk through this morning what it looks like then for us to be people of the already and the not yet. So now as we wrap up our Advent sermon series, what does it mean then to embrace this idea that Jesus reigns, that there are things that are already true, and yet what does it mean to have hope and be people of hope for a world that has not yet seen the fulfilling and the the consummation The full peace reign. How do we live in the already and the not yet? So we will just read uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. Paul, a servant of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to his spirit or the spirit 
of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus, King, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including, uh, including you who were called to belong to Jesus the King. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we do rest in the sure knowledge that you are the means by which our hearts are enlivened. You apply the richness of who we are in Christ. All that he has, you give us because of the will of the Father. We ask this morning that that would be in some small way the ears to hear and the eyes to see the truth and power of who you are and who that empowers us to be. We ask this morning that whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. Amen. So we live in a time which is probably not different than any other time, it just varying degrees, where uh, the great expectations, the great goals, the aspirations of being a people who embrace justice and mercy. For us in the West, as we've uh, grown up with the Judeo-Christian values of, of justice and mercy, it's something we would like to think we aspire to. And yet in the political world, uh, outside the world of the church, we are tempted to see those great ideals politicized and weaponized. What does it mean to be a person of justice? Who do we show mercy to? And if we show mercy to this person, does this make us one kind of political person? If we show mercy to another, does that categorize us as another subgroup of people? Who gets justice? How deeply do we really look into the nature of our own justice system where that justice system may or may not have gone awry? And if we as Christians simply try to, as complicated as it may be, apply a biblical notion of justice and mercy in the rather straightforward yet incredibly difficult way in which it's laid out in Scripture, we can feel the pressure in our world to pick a side politically that we were never designed to pick in the kingdom of God. It is the temptation to fall into the trap that if we pursue the ethics and the qualities of the kingdom of God, we are picking a side in the political debates of our day. And I want to encourage us that as Paul lays out his opening invitation and salutation to the people of God in Rome, who are at the center of an empire, who are in the midst of their own social 
challenges, places where uh, people are being treated unjustly in a totalitarian regime. In the church that Paul is writing to, Jews are coming back into Rome after having been summarily kicked out because apparently they got into some rather heated conversations about Jesus in their synagogues, created a little bit of hubbub, and in classic Roman style, it was like either we kill you or you get out, but you're annoying us. And you're, just, you're, you're clogging up business, right? I mean, if it wasn't making money, Romans weren't terribly interested in it. And so they kicked a whole bunch of Jewish folks out of Rome. And after that uh, emperor died, people began to filter back in to Rome. And so you have a church that was initially planted with largely Jewish folks who had most of those Jewish folks driven out of Rome for, oh, five to ten years. And as they start to come back into their city and back into their churches, the dynamics have changed. There are people in that church who have been victims of injustice. There are people in that church who have witnessed the injustice done to others. It's a complicated relationship. But what they're called to do, according to Paul is live in line with the character and ethic of King Jesus. Now, how do we know these things? Well, let's start, we'll run through the text uh, pretty much in the order in which it's in your Bibles. So Paul, a servant of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now again, we need to remember that for Paul, the gospel was not what you and I normally grew up in in the sense of a Billy Graham crusade that if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved from hell. That's not what Paul means by the gospel. Paul means what Jesus meant, that the kingdom of God promised, the equitable kingdom, the kingdom that uh, our Jewish king in our Old Testament reading was not a good representative of. The kingdom of God would break forth and his people would be justified and freed and allowed to live lives in the promised land of peace and unmolested. Now the problem with that, of course, is that God's own people were rebellious and of course they needed to be forgiven for their sins. But when Paul talks about being an ambassador for the good news of Jesus Christ, it is that Jesus Christ is king and his kingdom has started. And the first question you should ask is, well, how do I get in? And the answer is going to be, you couldn't. You couldn't because you have to be perfect to be in the kingdom. And that's why our king died for us. So, of course, we get to what we've historically understood as the gospel, which is Jesus dying for our sin. But remember, Jesus' own words is the good news of the gospel has come. Tell everybody because I'm here and here are the good things that are happening. And so Paul is an ambassador of Christ's kingdom, which is a kingdom of service and justice and mercy, restoring the reality and the freedom we have to be fully human, created in the image of God, not driven by fear and darkness and death. And so Paul has this great calling to be an ambassador of the gospel, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in Holy Scripture. Now, the important aspect of that is this longing for change. This longing to see it begin. 
We live 2,000 years after the change began, and sometimes it's hard for us not to focus on the stuff that's the same. Because death is still present, because evil has not been driven from the field, we can be tempted to look back, sermon number one, at the darkness. We feel the weight. You know, have you been in a room or felt darkness where it feels like you can feel it? There is a weight and a heaviness to darkness, real darkness, pitch darkness, not just, you know, light evening darkness. I mean, the weight of pitch blackness has actual weight. And we are tempted when we feel that weight on our backs to look back and think that's the future as opposed to looking at Jesus and knowing that's the hope. There is not enough time to unpack the ways in which the kingdom of God has moved forward. We live in such an abundance of the ethics and the kingdom of God that we are spoiled. We're spoiled by it. And part of the reason we're so frustrated with things like the quote I put on the front of the worship folder, which talks about the challenge of institutionalized injustice. The reason we're annoyed is because we know we should be better as God's people. We want to be better as even a secular nation, doing a better job of engaging and having a place of justice, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. The fact that you care about that is an indication of the kingdom of God. If you care about that for another and not just for yourself, you've been infected in a good way by the ethics of the kingdom of God. Of course, people have always been annoyed when they're oppressed. But to start caring about the oppression of another, that's a novel idea. To be offended by the oppression, consciously or unconsciously, of another group of people is what happens when the ethics of kingdom of God enter into a culture and a society. The prophets promised that one day the kingdom would begin to have ever broader impact, that there would be a king who would extend it beyond the children of Israel. And Paul saying, I serve that king. What the prophets wanted, what the Holy Spirit led those people to see and hope for is now happening, and you're a part of it. Concerning your son... Concerning his son, uh, descended from David according to the flesh. Again, worth quickly mentioning. That is Paul's way of saying he knows your brokenness and failings and mine. King David's line, we like to think romantically. Oh, King David's line, it was wonderful. It was a train wreck. Have you read the history of David's kids? Even when David was alive, it was a little awkward. It is a recognition of Jesus entering into not a perfect line, not a beautiful and glorious line, but a terribly flawed line that needed to be restored, that needed to be rejuvenated, that needed to be transformed. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart, but his heart in the flesh was broken and lost, and his children 
also suffered from that brokenness and sin. Jesus being born of the line of David, yes, that's the line in which the promised Messiah would come, but Scripture takes great pains lest we think that line was somehow superior to your family household or mine. It was a household broken by sin that needed to be restored. We just happen to know all of their tragic news. I'm grateful that my family's history is not written in a book for everyone to read. I don't know that it would be any better than David's. Hopefully it wouldn't be any worse. So Jesus comes into a family that needs to be restored. He puts himself materially, mating himself to flesh, taking on the very nature of a servant, coming up from a line that is broken. The promised line, but a broken line. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit that gives holiness. And this is one of the... Anyway, I can't. Much fun. Lots of fun Greek about what the spirit of holiness means, but at the very least what it means is the one who imparts the otherness. That is to say, the spirit that set Jesus apart for his work that sets us apart because of what Jesus has done. Holy is set apart for a purpose. doesn't mean you glow weirdly, right? It is about being set apart for a purpose. Holy saints are people who are in the business of extending love and mercy in the mud. They don't often look like they're glowing. It's hard to see it. But the world can see it because it is different. It is a heart of love. It's not, it's not a picture. It's not an angelic view. It is practical and deep. Holiness is about being set apart for the purposes of God, which will not make us different in the sense that we can't interact with other human beings so separate that we don't know how to engage, it actually makes us, if Jesus is holy, more approachable to a broad group of people. I want to be holy like Jesus. I'm going to have a diverse group of friends. It doesn't make us separate. It makes us engaged. We are declared to be, sons, uh, declared to be son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That's how we know the kingdom started. That's a fulcrum of history. Very briefly, What the Old Testament tells us up until this point is that death and sin win. Right? Death and sin win all the time. I can't walk down the street without becoming unclean so that I can't go to the temple. Everything I touch effectively, right? One way to look at all of those cleanliness laws is that you're dirty all the time. Everything makes you unclean. The death and evil in the world is such that I can barely breathe without being in some way or another unable to enter the perfect holiness of God into his presence. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking around ancient Israel, and he starts touching lepers, which what used to happen is the leper stayed unclean. The person who touched the leper became unclean, and both of them needed to go get cleaned. And Jesus touches a leper, and the leper becomes clean, and Jesus stays clean. That is world-changing. We've heard it a lot, but just it is earth-shattering. Everything is now reversed. And then you get to his death, a shameful death, and you're going, yeah, see, death always wins. He was a nice guy. He was nicer than anybody we can remember, but death always wins. 
And then God raises him from the dead. And all of history turns. Death is on the run because it's been defeated. Darkness and evil are on the run because you can actually touch them now in Christ by the Holy Spirit and see them become clean. See them restored and made new. That's the power of Advent. That's what Paul gets so excited about when he runs around the ancient world, which had a lot of dark and death. And again, half the art we can't show our kids. The ancient world was not a comfortable place for Christians to live. It was a wash in eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And Paul is excited about those nations coming in and seeing life and light, and he believes they can be touched and made alive and clean because of what happened at Gethsemane, what happened at Golgotha, and what happened when the tomb was made empty by Jesus rising from the dead. So through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Okay, so obedience of faith for his name. So again, uh, the brilliant thing is we all get to share in the ministry. And Paul is excited for the Roman church that they get to share in the ministry. And it is interesting enough, he mates obedience and faith for the sake of his name. Why? Because obedience to Jesus is foolishness to the world. You will do a lot of things that if this is a material world and you only have 80 years, is really silly. You will deny yourself pleasures. You will deny yourself economic security. You will deny yourself physical security. You will put yourself in a position to be scorned and ridiculed by those around you. You will do all manner of things that if this is all there is, is really silly. It's going to take faith to be obedient in the kingdom of God. To extend love to your enemy takes faith that there is a God who loved you and you were an enemy, now made a friend, not just a friend, but a child and an heir. It's going to take faith to be obedient because very little of the real kingdom ethic lived out makes much sense in a pragmatic world of power. Pragmatic world where money and pleasure are a finite resource to be enjoyed for a finite period of time. It's going to take faith to be obedient. And not just obedient when you're being pious. But faith and obedience when we're being shamed. When we're being humbled. Because we followed. For the sake of his name, to all the nations which we've been talking about, including you uh, who are called to belong to Jesus the King. Again, the relational language here is stronger than what you see in a normal Roman letter and salutation, to belong to. It is intimacy language. It is commitment language. 
And then in our last verse, to all in, those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So again, word order is everything. What's the word order? It's not be saints and then God will love you. It's those who are loved. How can we stand with darkness at our back and believe in the first rays of light of morning? Because we are loved. We are more loved than we can possibly imagine. We were loved before we knew who he was. We were loved when we were formed in our mother's wombs. We were loved when we were at our most unlovable, doing the most unlovable things to ourselves or to others out of our fear and lusts and anxieties and avarice. We were loved. And when we acknowledge that love, then we have the privilege of being called saints. Saints. It is a gift. It is a title bestowed. It is never earned. It is given because of the love of God himself. And then again, I hope you greet each other and use good benedictions like the one Paul summarizes his opening statement with. Because in the midst of what he is going to talk about for the Roman church, what you and I face in 2020, our desire to care for one another, to build on the richness of safe families, to get to know uh, some of the folks in Jamie's uh, community or in other places, just to know one another better and to be free to be known by one another better. We have a great need to hear words of benediction regularly, to know how deeply we are loved and cared for. The beauty and the power, I should read it because I'll maul it otherwise, right? The sermon should end on a benediction. Hear now the good news. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to fill us with the good words. Though you will challenge, though you will stretch, you will also always provide. You will never leave and you will never forsake. May the grace and peace of those words rest in us. May we delight in this Christmas season. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would come forward at this time. We'll take up the tithes and offerings. Again, opportunity for us to give back a portion of what he has generously poured out on us.